0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today some of Hamilton's counselors want Doug Ford's commitment to LRT funding in writing. Rent control is going to be changing in Ontario. Will it provide a solution for the housing crisis? Also, the Ontario PC party voted on a resolution to debate whether or not the party will recognize gender identity. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're just a few days away from the swearing-in ceremony of the uh, new City Council, the ones that were elected back in October. And uh, obviously there are a number of challenges that they're facing, none the least of which, of course, is what to do with the LRT file. And I know that some people are getting a little tired of hearing this, but there's some new folks on Council, and there's still some consternation about the provincial commitment to the project. And uh, I, I think there's some legitimacy to some of those concerns. Uh, Brad Clark is the councilor-elect for our Stony Creek Mountain. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Brad, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us again. Thank you very much, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about this. Now, it, 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 a few years ago when you were running for mayor, you wanted to uh, focus on BRT. Uh, give me your thoughts now as you head towards what's going to be, I think, a very important decision for city council. Are you forward again? it? Uh, what are you looking for here?
1: I still believe that BRT would be the prudent way to proceed, uh, build up our ridership um, to the point where we actually can ensure that LRT is a success.
0: So with that in mind uh, comes the question of money. Uh, now we know that, uh, that Donna Skelly, the MPP for this area, the, the, the government MPP for this area, has told us on a number of occasions, that look at the money's there no matter what. Even if you don't want LRT, the billion dollars is still on the table for Hamilton. Uh, do you take that at face value?
1: Yes, I, I, I do. I, I respect Premier Ford and his commitment uh, to the $1 billion. Uh, but from my experience in politics and at the ministry level, uh, you tend to find that there's always um, rules and guidelines, if you will, uh, for a municipality to spend provincial or federal money. So it, it would be helpful if we had that. Uh, before we made any decisions on, on the future of LRT.
0: Back to the idea of commitment, uh, and I know there are a lot of people that would love to be able to take the Premier at face value. I know Mayor Eisenberger is on the record as suggesting that, and anybody I think who is in favor of the project would like to think so. But uh, given, well, even as late as last week, the the fact that you know, during the election campaign and just after he was elected uh, to the Premier's office, uh, Doug Ford said that he was going to still support the Francophone University and the funding for that uh, office, and he canceled those last week. So, I mean, how much of, of what he's saying can you take to the bank right now? Because everything seems to be on the table.
1: Well, I, I think um, most of the councils around the table would appreciate having something in writing uh, that really clearly identifies uh, what options and alternatives are available to the city. Uh, are there restrictions? Uh, what are the, uh, the guidelines? What's the approval process? How would the money flow uh, those are, are, are questions that we should have uh, in writing, answers to those questions in writing, prior to making any determination to either affirm LRT or defeat LRT. We really need to know what exactly um, we're going to get. And and Council Ferguson raised a very valid point uh, about the $105 million. Is the city of Hamilton going to have to reimburse that amount of money. So there's lots of legitimate questions that I think uh, a government, a reasonable and responsible government, would want to have answers to before they make it make a decision.
0: Well, the analogy that I drew from this uh, to get commitments from government, it goes back uh, to when you were in government. And as a matter of fact, we were on the cabinet table, I believe, and that was the, uh, the controversy about the possible closure of Henderson Hospital up on Hamilton Mountain. And uh, I was involved in, in obviously trying to work with that as Murray Butriani and you, MPP for this area. And I still recall, Brad, when we had that press conference, it was in the cafeteria of Henderson to announce that the government had recommitted to keeping this, not only keeping it, but to do the improvements to it. Uh, you read a letter from the minister. Uh, it wasn't just a handshake and said, hey, I have done good authority that. I mean, there was an official response from the government. We don't really have that here.
1: Exactly, Hannah. And I remember that day very well. Uh, and an official letter from the minister uh, indicating what his ministry uh, will be looking for and what the options and alternatives are, that would be incredibly helpful. Um, I'd like to see the debate about LRT and infrastructure de-emotionalized. I know there are a lot of people who are dismissing the billion-dollar commitment because it's not in writing. Uh, so realistically, I, I can't think of any municipal council uh, that would want to proceed without having answers to those questions before they make their final decision.
0: Well, because there's, a, as you mentioned, you you know the protocol. You've been there, you've been in Queen's Park, you've been around the cabinet table, and I can't think of all the years that I've been following politics, and that's a few now, uh, any government writing a blank check to a city and saying, here's the money, go do what you want with it.
1: Yeah, I know from the Ministry of Um, perspective that every capital infrastructure grant has rules attached to it so if there's an infrastructure program for example and we've used them many times in the city of Hamilton they announce how much money that you're qualified for but then you have a number of hoops to jump through we don't know what the hoops are yet and we don't know what the alternatives are Um, so it would be most prudent for the government to come forward um, and and provide us something in writing uh, so that council can start to make a a reasonable decision. Uh,
0: With that commitment, and as you say, Brad, you're willing to take the Premier at face value on this, Uh, but I mean there's some consternation in Mississauga right now about their LRT project, and the government seems to be backing away from that. Does does that increase your discomfort level here?
1: Uh, Nervous apprehension. I don't know all the details in Mississauga, but from, again, my understanding is the Ministry of Transportation in the past, prior to Metrolinks, would make decisions on transit funding and projects um, based on merit and based on certain thresholds. Uh, it was incredibly rare to find this type of expenditure uh, without strings attached. And, and it- I don't mean that in a disparaging way, Bill. Yeah. You have to tie it all up in a bow, if you will.
0: Well, I guess what's got, adding a little bit murkiness to this whole scenario here, too, is, I mean, you know, in in the short time that the, the Ford administration's been in power, I mean, you've got a new transportation minister, too, who I assume has to get up to speed on this file.
1: Absolutely, and, and many other files, and so it won't be—it's never easy taking over a ministry. It, it takes a couple of months to really get up to date on all the files— um but in the meantime i i really think that the council needs to have these answers i know that there are some councillors that would like to immediately hold a vote on affirmation of LRT. and i just think that would be unwise until we actually have answers to these questions let's be fully informed um we may choose to proceed down that road i don't know what council will do but I think they really need to know the alternatives, the options, what restrictions are there, et cetera.
0: Well, I mean, to get back to the initial commitment, and it was by the Wynn government at that time, you recall, we all recall, she came to town herself, to McMaster University, and made the official announcement, and that pretty much put the stamp on it. Uh, and we, we need, I think, some sort of clarity from this government about that.
1: I, I agree, uh, and, and uh, I had no problem with council writing a letter, and councilors... Working together on what the questions that they would like answers to, and forwarding it on to the minister. Uh, it would be great if the minister and deputy minister would come to town and speak with council. Um, that rarely happens, but on such a contentious issue as this, it's possible.
0: Well, and and that's the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is protocol in situations like this. I don't expect uh, the premier to, to come to town, although I'm hearing rumors that he may be here next week. Anyway. Uh, but it tends to just kind of come in quickly. There's not usually much of the way of an agenda, but that's that's neither here nor there right now. But the concern here is to have that face-to-face. Uh, I, I understand that Council's protocol may be, well, we are going to write a strongly worded letter. Uh, uh, <laughs> how many of those end up in the blue bin, and how many of those actually are, are responded to? And you, the, you have to wonder if that's the most effective way to get about the the, the, the ultimate goal here, which is to get information.
1: Um. Yes and no. Um, if it, if it appears to be a politically motivated letter, then it's not unusual for ministers to respond with a stock letter and not venture into that debate. But the the government of Ontario is central to this debate. Uh, let's be completely candid. Premier Wynne promised the billion dollars and the process was underway for the billion dollars for LRT. Premier Ford has indicated that Yes, you can have the billion dollars for LRT, or alternatively, public transit and and infrastructure. It would be helpful if we actually knew exactly uh, what the, the government is saying we can or can't do with the billion dollars.
0: Well, there's another question that's raised here that uh, that I have seen happen in the past, is even if the government does say this, and yeah, the money's yours no matter what, you got to ask a follow-up question, does that mean we're, we're not eligible for any other provincial money or any other grants because that could actually be one of the the strings attached to this.
1: Absolutely Uh, I'm I'm not disputing that at all. It's quite possible that they're giving a one-off to Hamilton and um, it's going to perhaps tie Hamilton's hands on seeking additional grants from the province for the next four years. I don't know, but we would like answers to those questions.
0: So how do you go about this? I mean, you're going to meet as a new council in the next couple of days here, and and obviously this is going to be one of the first issues this council is going to have to deal with. And I got to think that in some way, shape or form, Brad, the sand's kind of running out of the hourglass here. They can't keep kicking this thing down the road.
1: Well, and that's the risk that I'm worried about is that the longer we kick it down the road without um, proactively seeking answers to these questions. It, it starts to increase the risk of losing the billion dollars, period. There's a significant deficit, um, and other municipalities are are crying poor and wanting money out of the province. Um, so if it begins to look like we can't make a decision, then that might actually help the Premier make a decision, and I don't want to do that. Uh, I know everyone around the table are very reasonable, very responsible, very pragmatic people. I think they want to be proactive on the file. I think they want to to reach out to the province and say, listen, we understand and we respect the commitment, um, but now that we have that, can you please clarify what are the qualifications for projects? Um, what's the alt- alternates? What what restrictions are there?
0: Well, that's the risk you take, isn't it, as a council? I mean, if you meet and decide, okay, we're going to write a letter, then we're going to sit here and wait for the response from whichever minister. And if you write to the premier, you know as well as I do, the more often than not, they'll probably just refer to the transportation ministry. Uh, and you're going to have to get a response from that. But that that could also be perceived as obfuscating the, the
1: council's responsibility
0: to move on this.
1: Uh, it, it could be seen as that. Um, I don't I don't dispute the difference here, though, is I think that the local member, Donna Scully, and the Premier, they're well aware of, of the issue in Hamilton. Um, and I, I'm confident that they want to help us resolve that issue and come to a decision. So if they can provide us the information, then we can move on and make a decision once and for all.
0: You've had some conversations. I mean, you're not an official council yet. Uh, the new members have not been sworn in yet, but I know there have been some, some informal meetings. Uh, I've got to assume this topic has come up from time to time. What's, what's your sense, and I know you can't speak for others, but do you get a sense that this council wants to move forward on this project, or are they still kind of in a wait-and-see attitude?
1: I get the sense that the majority is at a wait-and-see um, position, uh, they really, they're intrigued by it. For example, Council Ferguson, he, he's he's giving conditional support to LRT. But if he could get answers to these questions, then that might change his position. So it it would be prudent, and behoove the province to to understand that and respond very quickly to any letter that is drafted by council.
0: To that end, Brad, uh, here give me a little inside information on this. Uh, how. Is Hamilton stacked up in the priority list for this for this administration? I mean, obviously, we do have a local member, Donna Skelly, here. Uh, a lot of opposition members, though, at the same time, and, and we know that there's politics in some of these decisions. Are, are we a priority for this government? Is this project a priority for this government? It seemed to be for the last administration, but I, I don't know that we have any clarity as to where we rank as far as this, this government, the Ford administration, is concerned.
1: I sincerely believe that both uh, Donna Skelly and the Premier and the Minister of Transportation um, see this as a, as a priority for them. Um, they all seem to support improving and enhancing transit, um, and they understand what's been going on in Hamilton very clearly. So I, I would expect that the priority were at the top of the, one of the top of the list projects that they need final determination on. Um, and we're going to have to work with them to come to that final decision.
0: You said a face-to-face would be probably the best possible scenario here to try to have a frank discussion about this. Uh, given the fact that it's highly unlikely the premier is going to want to address City Council on this matter, or maybe even meet with the Mayor, uh, why don't we toddle off down the highway and see if we can get a meeting down there?
1: Uh, that's a possibility, um, but I'm mindful of Council protocols. So... Um, I'm, I'm not one to write a letter to the Minister or the Premier because it's not any specific councillor's role to do that, uh, nor is it the role for the Mayor. Um, if council wants to seek these answers, then they have to pass a resolution stating what those questions are going to be, forward them down, and then I would suspect have a, a small committee of council uh, go down and, and, and get some answers. I. It would be great if the minister and deputy minister appeared before council i can't see that happening i can see them coming into town and talking to a number of the counselors around the table and and making the position clear but i just can't see them standing in front of a council and and risk being drilled on any number of questions
0: how soon do you have to get this information
1: well given that expropriation has stopped along the route um Every day that goes by is, is, you know, ultimately raising costs on LRT. So uh, I, I, I really believe the community wants to, your opening statement um, that the community is probably tired of this. I think that's starting to be true. Uh, there's fatigue about it. They just want an answer and a decision and I think this council is in the same position. They want answers to these questions so that they can look at their constituents and say, I made a bona fide, reasonable, pragmatic decision, one way or the other.
0: So in your mind, the ball's in the province's court right now, to be clear on this, and then the council can can act accordingly.
1: Um, Yes, but I think that council will have to proactively encourage them to provide us something in writing.
0: It's going to be an interesting discussion, to be sure. Brad, thanks as always. I appreciate the input today. No problem, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Brad Clark, Councilor-Elector, of course, for Stony Creek.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Last Thursday, the uh, Ford government had their fall economic statement. Uh, In fact, Friday morning, we had the Finance Minister, Vic Fidelli, on the program to explain some of the uh, initiatives. Uh, Controversial initiatives, too, I think is a very apt description of that. One, of course, was the... Uh, elimination of the Francophone University that uh, they had committed to during the election campaign, uh, which uh, has certainly caused a great deal of uh, anger and frustration among the uh, Franco-Canadian community, Uh, not just here in Ontario, but right from coast to coast, actually. Uh, I wrote about that on my blog today. But uh, another one had to do with rent controls. Uh, Obviously, we have a housing crisis here in this province, and uh, rental units are very, very much a part of that. And uh, it was announced that uh, the rent controls were going to be adjusted uh, by the government. Uh, and the suggestion was that this adjustment that they were making, which is uh, actually to remove some rent controls and keep others in place, which we'll explain in just a couple of minutes. But the whole idea here is, well, this is going to spur more investment in rental housing. They're going to build more units. Well, there are quite a few people who are rather skeptical about that. I want to bring Adam Kitchener into the con- uh, conversation. Uh, Adam from Unlimited Residential Living joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Adam, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with
3: us. How are you doing today?
0: Adam? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head about this because I, I when I talked to Minister Fidelli about uh, that policy change on Friday when he was on our program, Adam, I, I asked him specifically. I said, "You know, this has been tried before. They've tried rent controls. That didn't seem to spur investment in the industry. Now you're going to take them away." And I, I'm, I i guess I'm in a show me attitude right now. Show me that this is going to work. Do you have it? What are your thoughts on what they're trying to do here?
3: I think it's a good start, but I don't think it's going to change anything because, like you said, it was done before. It didn't really create anything before. It's not going to really create anything now. Uh, the the big issue right now is the landlord tenant board and the way it is dictated now, uh, the Residential Tenancies Act, and the things that uh, tenants can get away with that really make building apartments not really that desirable in the eyes of the uh, of a developer.
0: So give us give us some examples of this because I've heard this before, even at the local level. Of course, you know about the Acorn Group and and some of the problems that are going on. And, and uh, it's a lot of finger-pointing going on here, and I think it's causing an awful lot of, uh, of, of frustration because we're not really getting any straight answers from anybody.
3: Well, the biggest thing is to actually develop in this city, in, the, in Toronto or anywhere, the development fees, the taxes that are involved, uh, really disincentivize any developer to build anything other than condos. And also, the price uh, of the condos these days... 25% of it goes towards uh, taxes, development fees, all that sort of thing. So if you're buying a $400,000 condo, $100,000 of that is going to the government, which really prices out a huge portion of middle-income Canadians and forces them into the rental market, which is a huge strain on the rental market. That's what's causing prices to go up, is the fact that nobody can afford to buy a home in this uh, province because of government development fees and taxes and accept the taxes of that which means everyone's been resorting to rent apartments. Well, when you've got a lot of people renting a small amount of supply, obviously prices are going to go up because the demand is there. Yeah. Coupled out with the fact that 100,000 people move into this province every single year. Uh, and the, and then, of course, there's the other side of it, which is what I like to fight for, which is the small landlord. Us small landlords, we face uh, high delinquency, which is tenants not paying on the first, which means I'm forced to carry that tenant's. Uh, the financial burden of a non-paying tenant for months on end until we can get them on a payment plan, stand before a board, and get a court order for them to actually pay their rent, which seems like common sense. But we have to go and get an order from a board in order to ask for that payment if they don't pay on the first. Uh, And that process can take months. After they continue to fail on the payment plan, you're looking at four, five, six. I've seen tenants, landlords come to me with up to a year of no payment from a tenant, and before the tenant's actually evicted. And so that landlord's literally carrying a mortgage on top of his own personal mortgage and bills and life expenses, uh, before, uh, without any real problems given to the tenant. It, it, it's just completely a huge issue right now that needs to be corrected before developers even think about building an apartment rental in the city.
0: It's, it's, uh, very poignant that you bring this up because I've talked to other people that were in a similar situation here in Hamilton, Adam, uh, that that were, as you mentioned, small landlords. And uh, it got to the point where they're so frustrated by this and so frustrated by the red tape and by the legal system, they ended up selling the properties. And even that was difficult because the tenants who were being... You know the problem in in their circumstance, Uh, basically, just you know they would just mess the whole property up anytime anybody wanted to show it. So it was it was their worst possible nightmare. And uh, uh, we don't hear those stories though, and and that's maybe why some people are saying, well, what's the big deal with landlords?
3: The landlord is is perceived in uh, very often as a greedy, rich individual, which. In many, many cases, the majority of landlords in this country are actually middle-income, hard-working people who work two jobs uh, to get their property. Uh, they own one, maybe two properties of their own, and they're just doing it to help make ends meet, and it's used as a retirement plan. Well, that's and, and
0: that's, that's the, one that the two people that I'm referring to here, and I won't mention their names, were in that very situation. They didn't have pension plans, so they figured this has got to be my retirement income.
3: Absolutely. And I've literally had seven new clients come to me, which are landlords, small landlords, come to me and say, Adam, this tenant owes me $7,000, seven grand on this single family home. And then by the time I was able to get the tenant out, we were looking at another $10,000 worth of damages to the home because she completely destroyed it. So this landlord's out $17,000 and has been carrying the mortgage, actually dipped into his personal life savings and his line of credit to keep the house going. And he's at the point where he says, once we fix this house up, I'm putting it on the market, I'm selling it, which means that's one less apartment rental in the market. You duplicate that time and time again by landlords just closing up shop and saying, I'm done. The problem's only going to get worse and worse and worse for the good tenants who need a nice and affordable place to stay.
0: Well, and it, what makes it even worse is I, I was talking to a couple of developers who wanted to speak on the you know the promise on anonymity, and I said, "What's the big deal? Why why aren't you guys building high rise units?" And he says, "I don't need the headache." I mean, he, he says, I'm, "I'll be quite frank with you." He says, "It's more of a pain than anything else," and he says, "I'd rather not do it." To your point, he says, "Condos a lot easier. You know, you're going to get a tenant there. At least somebody's paying the freight for it." He says, "With rental units, you just don't know."
3: Absolutely, you can it's getting to the point where developers it's not worth the risk of holding a te- holding a property for twenty five years and, and slowly paying it off through through the rental process as opposed to a development where you can just sell the condos, wash your hands and be done with it. And that's not that's not gonna help the problem. So rent control is a nice addition. It will help, but it's not going to spur any new development. The real thing that needs to happen is changes need to be brought to the LTP, so that if you don't pay your rent, there's serious consequences as such. We need to accept damage deposits. We need a guarantee when it comes to rent collections. And at the end of the day, the real uh, incentive is going to actually come from the, deve- uh, from the government itself. If the government was willing to put their money where their mouth is and get serious about the affordable housing issue, they would remove all and any development fees associated with the creation of new rental units and remove property taxes from development, new rental development. Those things are going to put the bug in the developers here to say, okay, maybe the numbers start to make sense. But until the numbers actually start to make sense, they're not even going to look at it.
0: Well, we, we had the federal government's announcement a week or two ago, I guess, uh, at, where they seem to be going down that road. I don't think it's nearly as much as, as probably the industry needs at this stage. But but you're absolutely right. The only way this is going to happen is if governments get involved in this and, and, and give these guys this these incentives. And, uh, you know, we, we've had for the last 25 years both the federal and provincial governments actually turning their back on affordable housing, simply say we don't want to get involved in that. Uh, It's going to be up to each municipality. Well, they can't afford that. No, No municipality can. Not Toronto, not Hamilton, not Ottawa, none of them. So it's about time that these guys came back to the table.
3: But the problem is they're not asking landlords how to solve the issue. They're listening to voters. They're listening to tenants. And they don't know what that's because they keep saying rent control, rent control, rent control. That's what Wynn did back in 2017. And it completely destroyed the rental market. The prices of housing have skyrocketed or rental houses have skyrocketed because of that. And the only way, and I've been saying this for months and months and months, the only way is to increase the supply. And how are you going to increase the supply? You've got to go to the developers, the people who actually create the supply and ask them, How are you how do we make this attractive to you? And it's through those items that I just mentioned. You can't go to the tenants and say, How do we make the building attractive? Because they're not supplying The actual units they are the end users they're the beneficiaries so if you if and if they do those things if we oversupply the market all of the other issues that tenants have with slumlords rent evictions on use evictions um bad uh landlord practices are all going to go away because if we haven't oversupplied the market if the vacancy rate was actually at a healthy rate it would go into a competitive bid for apartments where landlords would be competing to get tenants and not the other way around.
0: Why, is, why isn't why is any government tackling this then? Why do they always come at this from the wrong end?
3: Because the government's looking for the easy solution, not the right solution. They want the quick and easy solution. It's things like when they do minimum wage, $15 for everybody. That doesn't do anything. It just drives the cost of everything up. The real solutions actually take time. They take effort, but they don't necessarily win the vote. And that's exactly why
0: it's not happening. All right. If, if you had their ear, and and later on today, Adam, they, they call us, all right, ball, yeah, it's balls in your court. You tell us what you do. What would be job one as far as you're concerned? If I if, if come to
3: affordable housing, if you want to create affordable housing, you need to do one. You need to incentivize the developers to build the rentals, and that's either through uh, tax breaks for creating three and four bedroom unit, which is going to help families. You're going to create, uh, you're going to offer free property taxes for 25 years if you build an apartment building here in Ontario. And three, we're going to wipe development fees for the creation of apartment rentals. That's going to create the incentive over a condo. That's where the numbers are going to start making sense as opposed to building a condo where there is a 25% charge on all development condos and homes. Uh, The other thing that they're going to have to do is they're going to have to revisit the landlord-tenant board and seriously look at ways at at streamlining it, making it more efficient, so that we're not going to court for six to eight months to deal with something as simple as the non-payment of rent. Did you pay the rent or did you not pay the rent? And make the decision, deal with it, and get it done. If I don't pay my mortgage, the bank takes my house away. If I don't pay my credit card at the end of the month, the bank starts charging me interest. The credit card starts charging me interest. Landlords do not have the same recourse that every other business has when it comes to claiming their income. I said you can rent here, um, and the agreement was you pay on the first. If you don't pay on the first, there should be repercussions, consequences, and interest that I can go after in order to reclaim that money and not have to wait a year in order to reclaim that money.
0: What about at the municipal level? I know we've had some controversy over the last couple of years here in the Hamilton area uh, about conversions, uh, about residences and into, into multi-residential uh, units. A uh, lot of pushback from certain neighborhoods saying we don't want that going on here, but it seems to be a more popular rental form than high-rise. At,
3: at this point, we need to be looking at every possible solution when it comes to housing people. We have so many restrictions and bylaws and and things that it comes just down to renting and creating an apartment, they make it so incredibly difficult to create supply. At the end of the day, I think of it this way. Is it going to be good with health, fire health, uh, fire safety? It, it, that's the only thing that I think should be a requirement for a new apartment. It, if there was a fire, could the person safely get out of that unit? That should be it. If the answer is yes, they can safely get out of that unit, then we should be able to speed through the process of making it an apartment. They've got size minimums, they've got height minimums, they've got residential area, uh, like NIMBYism, like, oh, I don't want that in my backyard. So there's, it doesn't matter at this point. We've got way too many people looking for housing. So if I've got a basement apartment and it's just one room with a bathroom, make it an apartment. Let's solve this issue. We've got parking regulations. You can't create an apartment unless you have a a, a parking spot or in some neighborhoods you can't have a parking spot. It's completely ridiculous. Let's streamline this whole process. Let's get some more units online. I don't care if they're 400 square feet or 1,000 square feet, parking or no parking. Until the market gets to a real healthy vacancy rate, the issue is only going to get worse and worse and worse. And then, of course, The alternative solution isn't even that you can buy a home, because home prices in this province are absolutely out of reach for middle-income Canadians. We've got people with two incomes, $100,000 incomes, and they're coming and looking at apartments. That is completely ridiculous.
0: So how do you get that message to Queen's Park? How do you get them to, to shine the light on these problems that you've talked about, Adam?
3: I have reached out to Queen's Park. I've uh, also been working with the Ontario Landlord's Watch and several different other landlord organizations. And we're reaching out to them basically saying, let sit down, let's talk to the table, uh, let's talk at the table and discuss real solutions to affordable housing. I don't want rents that are too high that my tenants can't afford. I can only collect on rents that tenants actually pay. So it's not in my best interest to have sky high rents that tenants can't afford it's in my best interest to have a thousand units at lower prices than 500 at super high prices landlords have the solution you just need to be willing to talk to us so we've reached out to the to the ministry of housing we've reached out to our mpcs and i've even called out uh, doug ford and and i'm waiting for him to return my call we'll see if he does but i'd love to actually have a conversation and tell him my alternative solution to creating more affordable housing
0: so you need to be at the table I would love to be at the table. Uh, before policies are decided. That, that, do did, did, did you get the sense that the, the policies they announced during their, their fall uh, economic outlook here was really written on the back of a napkin? I mean, it, just, it didn't seem to be a whole lot of thought going into this.
3: What they're doing is they're doing big headlines, they're making big news, they're making big promises, and that's what it is. It's, it's the, look what we're going to do. Don't look too much into the details, but this is kind of what we want to kind of do without a lot of... Uh, Forethought being put into it. Um, I hope that it's not written on the back of a an napkin. I hope that they come through with the, with the end result. But I think uh, a lot of it is, is smoke and mirrors for now. But we'll see. We'll
1: see.
0: Adam, stay in touch with us. I appreciate the time today. Thank you so much. Adam Kitchener is uh, with a group called Unlimited Residential Living. Uh, and I, I get that, that there's two sides to this because we've heard an awful lot from tenants' organizations and they've got some legitimate concerns and some legitimate beefs. Uh, and just as Adam says, you know there are some bad tenants. There are some bad landlords too, and we've seen some examples of that in the East End of the city here in the last little while. When things are not fixed, repairs aren't done, and you know the landlords themselves are crying poor and saying, "Well, we just don't have the money for it." So, I mean, to s- simply suggest, to, "Well, it's the amount of rent. That's uh, fix that, and, and everything's going to be fine," uh, is rather naive. Th- there's got to be a wholesome discussion about this, and uh, he brings up some interesting points. At least having a revision of uh, some of the rules and regulations that are in place, whether it's the Landlord Tenant Board and the Residential Tenancies Act, and maybe, maybe have some uh, some public meetings about that. I think that's really what they're asking for here, is to sit down and listen to both sides before you decide on policy. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Ontario Progressive Conservatives had their policy convention in Etobicoke over the weekend and uh, elected a new president. That's what they use at policy conventions. But they also... Uh, from the floor will always have issues that they want to have as uh, debate issues and sometimes actually developing policy on these things. And uh, there was mixed reaction to the uh, Ontario PC party passing a resolution to debate gender identity, which kind of came out of left field for an awful lot of people. Uh, But it's raised the specter, no it's not policy yet, but it has raised the specter that they could be considering changing some of the existing legislation. Uh, And that's got a number of people legitimately concerned about that. Joining us to talk about this is Jessica Russell, who's the project coordinator of Spectrum in Hamilton. Jessica, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today.
4: Thank you so much. Nice to be here.
0: Were you surprised by
4: this? Yes and no. Um, I think that um, some of the work that Spectrum has done, uh, even before the election, we knew that the Ford government was very was not exactly looking out for the rights of um, LGBTQ individuals um, based on their, you know, talk about repealing um, sex education, stuff in schools, that sort of thing. Um, so it's not entirely surprised, surprise, but it definitely comes as a jolt uh, to our community, absolutely, uh, where we uh, definitely, there's, you know, uh, an element of, of, of fear involved, for sure.
0: Well, as you mentioned, since they deconstructed the sex ed program, I suppose anything's possible here. And and this came so very close, we were told to actually being adopted, well, not adopted as policy, but at least put on the floor to be voted on as policy. Now, it's not going to happen yet. It's, mm-hmm. They say now it's simply going to be a discussion item, a, a debate issue uh, in the next convention, which I guess is going to be a year from now. But the fact that it's even on the table has got to be rather disconcerting.
4: Absolutely. And it's, it's even the the, the title of of the act being about, you know, education and community safety, when ironically, this is putting, um, you know, trans students, especially um, at risk in schools to not, you know, be able to uh, talk about their identities for that not to be acknowledged in schools. Obviously, like you said, it is far away from being policy. And I know many people both here in Hamilton and across Ontario will be fighting to make sure it never does uh, become official, you know, government policy. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely concerning and, uh, it's, uh, yeah, community safety, uh, you know, we're, um, if anything, you know, recognizing that people have, you know, uh, gender identities and gender expressions, which we all have gender identities and gender expressions. Um, is uh, definitely not putting anyone at risk. That's
0: for I, sure. just, I just want to read the motion. Uh, it's only a couple mm-hmm. of lines long here for those who maybe have not seen this yet. I know you certainly have. Uh, it's proposed mm-hmm. by Tanya Granick allen of course, who was the uh, PC leadership candidate uh, from the extreme right of the party. Uh, it says, be it resolved that the Ontario PC party recognizes gender identity theory for what it is, namely, a highly controversial, unscientific, liberal ideology. And as such, that an Ontario PC government will remove the teaching and promotion of gender identity theory from Ontario schools and its curriculum—that's pretty heavy stuff.
4: Yeah, yeah, and uh, very partisan as well, which is not really, um, you know, being a liberal ideology is is not exactly what uh, what most experts on on gender identity or. Um, you know, gender expression would say.
0: Well, that's an interesting characterization, a liberal ideology as opposed to a human rights ideology.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it also just doesn't consider the fact that, uh, you know, human rights organizations, uh, you know, most pediatric associations, most doctors' associations, um, educational associations, like the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, they all agree that gender identity uh, is is key to supporting uh you know their students and and uh, key generally in their uh, uh, education. So I feel that um, really targeting that is uh, is is very sad and uh, definitely makes it clear who and who is not welcome in uh, the current Ontario provincial government.
0: Well, and therein lies the problem. You must feel sometimes like it's one step forward and two steps back.
4: Absolutely, and 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 we know to expect this at this point, right? You know, every time uh, any sort of, uh, you know, human rights or, or equity-seeking groups gets any sort of progress, there's often a backlash, right? You can see that across many different, uh, you know, successes. Similar things happened once same-sex marriage was legalized. Similar things, um, you know, happen as well. You know, uh, with with the human rights uh, legislation being. Uh, passed in both the Ontario Human Rights Code and Bill C16, um, with uh, protection for gender identity and gender expression, it's uh, it's it's not surprising to see that backlash, but to see it so targeted and to see it um, really just completely saying that trans people don't exist when we know that that's not true, and and you know trans people are here and active and and uh, strong participants in our communities. Um, it's uh, disappointing and and uh, nerve wracking to say the least.
0: Well, it's worthy of noting, of course, that Tanya Granick Allen, uh, the the former leadership candidate, uh, actually was well on record as being opposed to the civil marriage act uh, from many years mm-hmm. ago. As a matter of fact, she was a candidate uh, after she was uh, uh, not successful in the in the leadership campaign. She tried to run for a seat uh, as a conservative candidate as a PC candidate and was basically asked to step down after uh, some of her comments about civil marriage and uh, were revealed. I guess there was a video that was uh, being shown from uh, some years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. So so this is no surprise as far as she's concerned. But I guess the story here, Jessica, that uh, should be concerning, I think, to all of us, is the majority of people on the floor of this convention said, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. If they didn't, yeah. that never would have happened. This wouldn't have seen the light of day. So yeah. it's, it's just not Tanya Granik-Allen that we're talking about here
4: it's the party yeah absolutely um and we're also considering too you know what the, the the larger impact of that tone that that sets in the legislature uh the larger impact of the the tone that, that sets even in our municipal governments you know and 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 our federal governments in the upcoming election um you know at, at spectrum hamilton we're a group of young people who are both you know trying to build community here in hamilton but we've been very uh, active in both the provincial and municipal election to try to engage uh, our elected representatives uh, to support uh, inclusion across the board, in, in you know our school boards, in our uh, municipal, provincial governments. Uh, so, the the tone and and sort of the rising tone of of really fascism it feels uh, is. Uh, is deeply concerning, not just to trans communities, but to all of the communities that are involved within trans communities. So, um, trans people of color, um, you know, trans women, uh, you know, non-binary people. There's a lot of people and in, in intersections, um, that are all facing, you know, the brunt of a lot of the actions of this government, including, you know, the removal of the, um, basic income pilot, um, you know, cuts to social assistance, all of those things are really connecting, um, and, and, and really, uh, pressing hard on, on uh, our communities right now.
0: I was talking to somebody about this earlier this morning. I said maybe one of the most inflammatory elements of this is, well, the controversial, okay, that's a word they t- tend to throw around a lot, mm-hmm. but to call it unscientific liberal ideology. I mean, more to the point, mm-hmm. is, is, it's, isn't science that they choose not to believe?
4: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, choosing choosing what science, whether that's climate science, whether that's you know science on identity uh you know, science on, you know, who we are as people, you know, if you can't, if you can't believe science, I don't really know what you, uh, what you can't believe in other than, uh, separating us and, uh, singling people out.
0: Well, I think, I, I hope we're not back to square one on this discussion and debate, but, uh, it's, uh, it was not a very encouraging day. Jessica, I, I know we'll stay in touch as this develops over the next little while. I do appreciate the time today. Thanks so very much.
4: Thank you as well.
0: Jessica Russell, of course, project coordinator with, uh, Spectrum Hamilton. Uh, it did catch a few people off guard when uh, when this actually made it to the floor at the uh, policy convention. Uh, one of those covering the day, of course, was Travis Dalrange, who was the uh, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Travis, thanks for the time. Appreciate you jumping in today.
2: Morning, Bill. Anytime.
0: Did you see this coming?
2: No, you know what? And, and, and here's, let me just set the stage for you. Uh, this took place at the Toronto Congress Center, which is a big convention hall. Usually, at political conventions, the media, they're allowed to, to kind of roam wherever in the main hall sometimes there's a there's a holding area for media but you're still in the convention we were only let in about three times once on the friday night for the premier speech then we were put back into that holding room the holding room doesn't have monitors so you can't really tell what's going on then we were brought out on the saturday for Andrew Scheer's speech back in the holding room so uh, this happened in before Andrew Scheer's speech in 10.30 in the morning uh, of Saturday, and I had sources inside who were telling me what was going on, and I I had the resolution on the screen texted to me, um, be it resolved that an Ontario PC party recognizes gender identity theory for what it is, namely a highly controversial, unscientific, liberal ideology, and as such, that an Ontario government will remove the teaching and promotion of gender identity theory from Ontario schools and its curriculum. So I would... I was pretty shocked to see that a emotion like this was on the floor. Uh, and so then, of course, we started getting reaction to it. And, I, you know, I put the tweet out. That tweet that I put out initially, um, breaking the story, has over 400,000 views. And the outrage continues to grow online.
0: There was a period of time yesterday, too, Travis, where we were under the impression, and, and again, it's kind of difficult because you weren't getting direct information from anybody, that this was actually a resolution that could have been passed as policy.
3: Well,
2: absolutely, and so you know th- that was that was kind of the what we had to figure out. And initially, you know, we're in the back with communication staff, and I said, "Well, you know, what's the deal with this? Is it passed as policy?" They said, "Let us get you a statement." Um, they did not say, "No, it's not passed as policy." They released a statement um, that was very generic, and saying that you know we our party is strong, united, and we encourage all members to bring forward their personal ideas. Then the communication staff, I saw them go off, it, it, you know, down the hall, likely into a meeting with a constitutional expert on the PC Constitution. They came back to me and they said, wait, 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 wait. This actually did not pass. It's it, it, it passed, but it's passed to the debate stage. We're going to debate it next year. And I said, okay, well, we'll get me a statement saying that. It took them another two hours to get, get me a statement. Then they put out a second statement where they say that the that this issue brought forward to the policy advisory committee and it was rejected but it was brought forward on the floor again and they encourage open discussion and debate so the two lines in that statement kind of run contrary to one another they're saying that it was rejected initially but it was brought forward and they encouraged open debate and discussion and it passed and we're told that it passed with an overwhelming majority that they didn't even need to go to they have these buttons in their heads if you know if it's unclear from the raise of hands whether or not you know something. Has a full majority or not? They go to the buttons. They didn't even have to do that because there wasn't much, uh, there weren't many no votes in the room.
0: Do you get the impression that, uh, like you say, it was turned down by the party executive that they didn't want to touch this thing
2: uh,
0: with a ten-foot pole? Uh, yet, obviously, Tanya Granick Allen and those that were supportive of this had been doing some log- lobbying, I guess, on the convention floor.
2: Well, and that's it, right? I, you know, I've been talking to social conservatives in the PC party, and I've, I've also been talking to some of the more mainstream folks. And the mainstream folks are telling me, well, listen, you know, we basically uh, got out-organized by Tanya Granick allen She had more people there, more people to vote on this. Um, you know, if we had whipped the vote, if we had ensured that, you know, the room was stacked with people that are more mainstream thinkers, then this would not have passed. Uh, and, and so that is that that's raised a big issue. Uh, and they've got to make sure that, you know, next year, when this actually comes up again for debate, the, the, the room is, you know, with people that that will vote against this. It's also, you know, interesting to note that uh, the Premier hasn't come out and said anything about this. I've been told by my sources that this is going to come up in about 10, 15 minutes or so. Once question period gets started, the opposition is going to raise this issue. And it'll be interesting to see which way the Premier goes, if he completely denounces this or if he kind of, you know, tries to walk the line here. Because he'll alienate the folks that agree with this, the social conservatives, if he does you know, come out and denounce it, and then he'll alienate LGBTQ and so the mainstream folks if he doesn't do that.
0: Now we know that this technically, from, from what you were told yesterday, this isn't going to be debated until the next policy convention, which is a year from now, but in the meantime, the government has promised to re-mould the sex ed curriculum for the school. Uh, not, even though this is out there, it's hanging out there, is this going to be a factor in, in how they actually craft that that new policy?
2: Well, and let's be clear as well, right? I mean, this is this is an indication of where the folks in the room at the time want the party to go. It's not, it is not government policy. It's not anywhere near to being government policy, but it does, you know, put the premier in a bit of an awkward position here. Uh, It will, you know, the 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 former premier Kathleen Wynne came out uh, very strongly against this. The NDP they had someone there within about an hour or so to comment on this. Merritt Styles uh so you know once again we'll see but i mean the 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 policy convention is in a year and so they they really you know they don't uh, i would guess they don't want to be discussing this uh you know and the reaction has been swift online so they want to get back on message the premier's got a big day today right the 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 quebec premier is here for a visit and he wants to be discussing that there's also issues when it comes to that as well i mean they cut the French language commissioner uh, the other day in the fall economic statement so there's a bunch yeah and of and, and, well. and
0: cancel the uh, the francophone university I'm sure that's exactly. that, that's going to come up in the conversation
2: 100% percent right and so they don't want to be fighting two battles uh, they, you know they, they, they I would guess that they'd want to get this one out of the way but you know uh, once again, there, you know, the line that I was receiving yesterday, um, once everyone got their ducks in a row as well, wait, 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 We, you know, this is not, this is, this is, this is just, you know, all kinds of motions are brought to the floor uh, at, at all, you know, at different conventions and different parties have, you know, all kinds of crazy motions brought to the floor. Just because we debate them doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to ultimately agree with it. Yeah. In, a, uh, in
0: other, other words, th- in other words, nothing to see here. Move on.
2: Well yeah, but I mean the, the, the very fact that this is even a discussion, this is even a debate is concerning. You know, if there was a motion put up on the screen saying everyone's gotta wear clown noses in question period and it passed, well, you know, that's kind of you know, similar to this. Why would we why would we even be discussing an issue like this in two thousand eighteen?
0: It's going to be a lively question period, I guess, at Queen's Park uh, in just a little while. We'll let you get to it. We'll be watching for your reports, of course, Global News and 530 to 6. Uh, thanks so much for this, Travis. I Bill. Take care. Take care. Travis Donrange, of course, Queen's Park Bureau Chief with Global News.